If you take the Bible that's in the book rack in front of you and turn to page 1201, along toward the end of the Bible, 1 Peter, those of you who have your own Bibles, 1 Peter, what does that mean? That means the first letter Simon Peter wrote to the church. 2 Peter means the second letter that he wrote. The word epistle means letter, and this is a letter that he wrote to the church. Now, this word to the church in the first century is as applicable and pertinent to us today as it was to them 2,000 years ago. This is God's word to us. And we're going to read from the second chapter, beginning with the ninth verse, page 1201, down near the bottom in the left column. And we'll read together in unison the word of the Lord. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless this reading of his word to our hearts. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve, right? Let's join hands together. Put the Bible down and join hands with one another on either side of you, and we join hands to pray together. Lord, we join hands together in a figurative way of realizing that we're joining hands with you because on either side of us are members of your body. We're all your body through Christ our Lord, and we pray for each other. And we know that you're holding each and every one of us in the palm of your hand firmly and eternally. We pray, Father, for those that we're holding hands of prayer with around the world today, across this city, state, nation, and world, wherever people are meeting together in your name, we pray for them. We pray you will bless them and use them and help them be salt and light in the world that needs such healing. We pray for those here who are hurting. We pray for those who are having financial difficulties or family problems or school difficulties or illness. Dear Lord, you know the needs of all of our lives. I pray that you will say a personal word to me and to everyone here. Speak to each of us. May this be an intimate, personal encounter with you this day because we do pray this in the loving name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. How many of you saw the Prince of Egypt? May I see your hand? Oh, many of you. Wish all of you had seen it. We went twice, Martha and I, two grandchildren once, two grandchildren the second time. It's a great story. It's beautifully told, very biblically sound. And it takes the children of Israel from the time they were imprisoned by Pharaoh in Egypt and how they were delivered uh, by the miraculous parting of the waters following the plagues that God sent to force Pharaoh to let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. Moses repeated word to Pharaoh. And so they crossed the Red Sea. They came out of the bondage of Egypt. Moses, he was a mountain kind of man. He was nurtured in the royal court and customs of ancient Egypt. 
At 40 years of age, he killed a man. And he then exiled himself to the backside of nowhere on a desert to spend the next 40 years, he thinking to spend the rest of his life. God was preparing him during that 40-year boot camp to prepare him for leading the children of Israel through the next 40 years in that same desert, across that wilderness. He acclimated him physically, mentally, spiritually for the task that God had before him. God always uses our deserts for the purpose of leading ourselves and others to a promised and promising land. All of God's servants through the years, biblically and personally, have had desert times. And God uses those times to condition us for the exigencies and the challenges and the needs of the tomorrow. God was not punishing Moses. He was preparing Moses. God is always preparing us for something greater to do in his service. That's true of this church. These past 50 years have been, in a sense, just a prelude, a preparation for even greater things to do in the future. We've not been in the desert, but we've had some desert times along the way, but God has brought us through that and taught us and enriched us and broadened us and made us more inclusive and more responsive to the needs of the world around us, irrespective of what those needs might be. I want to say a word about the power of God, for it was the power of God that delivered the children of Israel from bondage. And it is the power of God that will deliver us from our Egypts and from our Pharaohs. In the first chapter of Romans, 16th verse, Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dunamis, it's the Greek word from which we get dynamite. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. I love that word, everyone everyone that believes. God is all-inclusive. His love is unconditional. Over and over and over you hear Jesus saying, whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever will, let him call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever will. That's a great word, one of the best words in the Bible. Whosoever, whosoever. There's an old gospel song, whosoever surely meaneth me. Do you, you remember that, Tommy? I'm not old enough to remember that, but Tommy remembers it. <laughs> no, I can remember that saying. Uh, he surely remembers, I can't remember all of it. Whosoever meaneth me, whosoever surely meaneth me. I hate to make it jealous, that beautiful solo he sang. But whosoever meaneth me, it's a whosoever invitation. God gives to everybody. And listen to me, I don't care who you are or where you are. You may be in some self-imposed exile on a desert because of something that's happened in your life. God's going to put a burning bush in your life, a burning bush revealing himself to you because he has a new purpose for you. He will use the experiences of the past as preparation for positive service in his name in the future. God works all things together for good to those who love him, and to those who are called according to his purpose. God will deliver us. Our God is able to deliver you. It's interesting. I looked through my concordance on the last 
couple of weeks on how often you read the word deliver, deliverance, deliverance. Jeremiah used it often. The Psalms use it often. Delivered. He delivers us from the Pharaohs in our life. And I don't know what the Pharaoh may be in your life, but all of us have some, large and small, at one time or another. Pharaoh. Maybe the Pharaoh of fear. Of self-hatred. It'd be the fear... Maybe the Pharaoh of a grudge against someone else that's eating away like a malignancy on your soul, not hurting them but destroying yourself. God wants to deliver us from those Pharaohs that would imprison us and shackle us and manacle us and keep us from knowing the fullness of God and the freedom that comes through Christ. He has come to deliver us from the failures of yesterday the frustrations of today and the fears about tomorrow. God even knows the answer to Y2K. You don't need to worry. God is still in charge. Even though some people don't believe it, God is smarter than the computer. He really is. Uh, and the computer's a lot smarter than I am, and that's intimidating. He takes care of all of the Pharaohs in our life. He delivers us. Not only does he deliver us, but he forgives us. He forgave Moses, and he'll forgive you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says that all of our sins are buried in the depths of the sea. He separated us from them as far as the east is from the west. Jesus said in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, after performing a miracle, he said, the Son of Man... And that's a synonym for Messiah. It's the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Scripture, uses the, the term Son of Man. That's a messianic phrase. Properly translated, it should be in that ninth chapter of Matthew, the Messiah, the Son of Man. Messiah has power, get this, on earth to forgive sins. He has power right now on this earth in your shoes to forgive us of all of our sins, and as the Bible says, he will remember them against us no more. He delivers us. He forgives us. He provides for us. The Bible says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Not all your wants, because all of our wants are not necessarily our needs. But God will supply all of our needs. He did for the children of Israel. Look what he did for them. Look what he did for the children of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, they had just a few possessions with them. When they came out of Egypt, here they were in the desert. They were ill-equipped for it. So what did God do? They didn't have food, so what did God do? He fed them breakfast in bed, theoretically. He gave them manna and quail every morning, fresh every day. He told them that their shoes would never wear out. Their clothes would not wear out. He provided them with with controlled climate. He gave them a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, the cloud was a symbol of God's presence over them and with them, but it also provided them some shade from the damaging sun of the desert. And the fire by night, the pillar of fire by night, kept them warm because on the desert at night it gets very cold. So here was God being a, basically a thermostat, making life just as peaceful as he possibly could for the children of Israel, feeding them and clothing them and controlling their uh, climate and leading them step by step where he wanted them to go. What a magnificent demonstration of the provision of God for his people.
And we have here in this great story the presence of God with these people, the presence of God. When they got into the promised land, God gave word that he wanted them to build a tabernacle, which means the tent of meaning, a tent of meeting. It was a place where God wanted to meet with his people on a regular basis, not just a regular basis, but on a perennial basis, perpetual basis. He said, I want to put this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, and you read about it in Exodus, it's just a blaze of color. You can imagine how colorful it was against the drabness of the desert. Bright red and scarlet and gold and purple and green, all these amazing colors. And he put it right in the center, and he said, now the, I want the 12 tribes to be encamped around it. Three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west, 12 tribes. He was saying, I am to be the core of your life. I am to be the hub of the wheel. And I am to be the center of your existence. And we're to have fellowship with one another. We're to converse with one another. And we're to face one another as a congregation around centering upon the Lord God's presence in the tent of meeting where he would meet with us and meet with his people. And the same applies to, to us. What did Jesus say? When two or three are gathered together in my name, I am what? I'm in the midst of them saying the same thing that he said to the Israelites in the desert thousands of years ago. I'm going to be in the middle of your life. I will be there not just on Sundays when you worship. I'm going to be there. I'm a seven-day God. I, I am not an absentee landlord. I am present with you forever and ever and ever. Now I want to say a word about the people of God, the power of God delivering his people from the pharaohs of life and from the Egypts of our existence to the people of God. Let me read you some verses of Scripture. 14th chapter of the book of Exodus. If you want to look at it in the Bible there in the book rack in front of you, turn to page 68. Page 68. You'll come to the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus. I'm reading from the Living Bible, and you have the NIV, but they're very similar. So let me read to you. For beginning with verse 10 of the 14th chapter of Exodus. If you have your own Bible, turn to it, please. As the Egyptian army approached the people of Israel, they saw far in the distance speeding after them. And they were terribly frightened and cried out to the Lord to help them. And they turned against Moses, whining, have you brought us out here to die in the desert because there were not enough graves for us in Egypt? Come on, God, what are you doing to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Isn't that what we told you while we were slaves, just leave us alone? We said it would be better to be slaves to the Egyptians than dead in the wilderness. Moses, trying to pastor and shepherd these people, said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Then the Lord said to Moses, quit praying and get the people moving. Now, I may, that may be the only time in the Bible when God ever tells people to quit praying. But he did here. Quit praying and get to moving. Now, why did he say that? Because I believe he still says that. Because some of us can hide from responsibilities to a world by pulling around us a kind of cocoon of spirituality that detaches us from the world around us, and we're going to be pure, and we're going to be so spiritual, and we're going to be so purified that we're not going to con be contaminated by touching the world. God says, pray. Yes, he does. It's a command. It's a need that we have. But he said, listen, there's a time to stop praying and start walking, to turn your prayers into feet, 
that move and hands that serve. Stop praying and start marching. Move forward. He'll say that to the church. We'll pray. We must always pray. Everything we do must be predicated upon prayer. But when the time comes, when God says move, it's time to move on. We do not want to hide in a kind of selfish spirituality that detaches us from the world. We want to be involved with the living God to be attached to the world in such a way that we'll make a greater difference for Christ in the next 50 years than we have in the past. Get to moving. Well, now, the people of God, they gave, they gave Moses a hard time through those 40 years. They were, they were petulant people. They were irritable. They were peevish. They were ill-tempered. They were, they were not easy to lead. Uh, they gave Moses all kinds of trouble. I, I just read your portion of it in the 14th chapter. Turn over one page to the 15th chapter in the 24th verse. Then the people turned against Moses. Must we die of thirst, they demanded. Then the 16th chapter. Look at it, one chapter right after another. There too the people spoke bitterly against Moses and Aaron. Oh, that we were back in Egypt, they moaned, and that the Lord had killed us there. Uh, turn to the 17th chapter. So once more, the people growled and complained to Moses. Why did you ever take us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us here to die with our children and cattle too? Why did you do that? On and on and on through the Scripture, all through the book, 12, at least 12 different times in the book of Exodus, we have the people of God have the people of God turning against Moses and their leadership and criticizing them and even threatening to stone them. Moses at one time just cried out, said, oh, Lord, what am I going to do with these people? What am I going to do? It is tough to teach people that don't want to be taught. And it's tough to lead people that don't want to be led. Opposition came from the very people that he was trying to save and help and was called by God to lead. Now, they, uh, they criticized him for a number of things. They criticized him because of his lack of provisions. He wasn't providing enough. What have you done for me lately? Not enough provisions. Reminds me of the story, the true story. They were having a little Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher was trying to teach these four- and five-year-old children to say thank you, to be grateful, to, be, to, to express gratitude for gifts that are given to you. And she thought she'd done a pretty good job. And then she asked the rhetorical question, uh, if somebody gives you a cookie, what do you say? Expecting a chorus of thank yous. One little four-year-old said, where's the milk? <laughs> How many times has God given us cookies that refreshed us and restored us and renewed us and we're still not satisfied? Where's the milk? What have you done for me? Lately. They criticized him because of his lack of provisions. They criticized him because of his wife. They criticized him because of his leadership style. He wasn't leading the way he ought to. Uh, he was a shepherd, not a CEO. And one of the perils of the church in the, this century, this part of the century, and the, I tell you, a major peril in the church of the 21st century is that too often pastors see themselves as CEOs rather than shepherds of the flock, and that's to the detriment of the church and the cause of Christ. There is a difference. The church is not a business. It's to be operated business-like, but it is not a business. There's a difference between a pastor, a shepherd, and a CEO. Well, here was the, Moses trying to shepherd the people, and they just didn't want to go along. And Moses got discouraged. I can understand him getting discouraged. Every preacher gets discouraged. 
you say, well, Bunker, I can't believe people that have been called by the Lord and blessed by the Lord get discouraged. Well, just read your Bible. Elijah got discouraged. Jeremiah got discouraged. I believe Jesus, I know Jesus got discouraged. You listen to some of the words he said. Oh, how long do I have to be with you before you understand me? Philip's question, 14th chapter of John. How long do I have to be with you before you get what I'm doing here? Looked over Jerusalem and wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't do it. There's just disappointment written all over those words. Oh, on another occasion, he was preaching and laying down some of the standards of what it meant to be a follower in the kingdom of God, and people started leaving, walking away. And he looked at his disciples and he said, are you going to leave me also? Is it too much to ask of you to put God first in your life? Surely he was discouraged. Yes, I can tell you from personal experience, pastors get discouraged. I have gotten discouraged. Having gone to Baylor and watched Baylor football games for years, I've learned how to deal with some degree of <laughs> discouragement. Um, this is a true story. One day, many years ago, uh, I waked up, I had an appointment in the morning, 8 or 8.30, and I waked up, and I was feeling so horrible. I had fever. I mean, it's one of those days when you just felt like you got to go. I mean, they have to carry you in on a stretcher. You feel like you have to go. And I was just feeling horrible. And I was sitting on the side of the bed, and Martha brought me a cup of coffee, and I was drinking that coffee, trying to get my heart started, and I was sipping on that coffee. And, and I came on television. It was about 7.15, 7.20 KMOL on the Today Show. And I came on, and I mean, I was really on that morning. I came on, and I said, it makes no difference how you feel about today. It makes no difference about what the day holds for you. God is going to be with you and you're going to be sufficient for all of these things because that's what God has promised to do. I mean, I was just sickeningly positive that morning. It was just <laughs> unreal. And I was sitting there sipping that coffee and watching myself. And when I was through with that 30-second little message, uh, it was a long pause, and a few moments Martha said, did you hear what that fellow said? <laughs> And I said, yeah, but he's a preacher. He doesn't know what he's really like. <laughs> he can say that. Well, I tell you, I can understand Moses being discouraged. Then I want to say a final word about God's plan for his people. God's plan for his people in Moses' day and God's plan for his people in Jesus' day and God's plan for his people in today, in our day because God has a plan for his people. I believe God has a plan for the world. And in Exodus 19, I wish you'd turn to it if you have it, very significant passage of Scripture. And this is the crux of what I want to get across this morning. I think it's the most important part of this message. The 19th chapter of Exodus, listen to God talking to his people through Moses. Give these instructions to the people of Israel. Tell them, it's the third, latter part of the third verse, beginning the fourth. Fourth verse, tell them, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I brought you to myself. Isn't that beautiful? As though on eagle's wings. 
Now, if you will obey me and keep your part of my covenant or contract with you, you shall be my own little flock from among all the nations of the earth, for all the earth is mine. Now, here's the key verse. I mean, this is dynamite. It's prophetic. And you shall be a kingdom of priests to God. You will be a holy nation. He is saying that every one of us will be a priest. Now, what is a priest? What does a priest do? Two primary functions of a priest. To represent God to the people. When they were in that wilderness, that desert, the tabernacle in the center, the tribes gathered around when the priests, the Aaronic priesthood, when they would walk through the tents of Israel, when they would walk through the tribes, they would be representatives of God. People would see them, it would remind them of God. They were to represent God to the people, and they were to represent the people to God. They were to go into the place of sacrifice as laid out in the Old Testament, in the Scripture. They were to go in for the place of sacrifice, to make a sacrifice for the petitions of the people, the needs of the people, the sins of the people, the hurts of the people. They would go into the presence of God to do intercessory prayer for the people. They were to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. Now, I want you to turn to page 1201 again in your Bible that we read earlier as the passage of Scripture for the morning. Now, listen. Fifth verse, 1 Peter, second chapter. Now, Peter's writing to us. You have become living building stones for God's use in building his house. You have become living stones. Nowhere in the Bible is the word church ever applied to a physical structure. The church is not a building. I like the Quaker, tabern uh, Quaker terminology. They call it the meeting house. Perfect term because it harks back to the tabernacle. It is the meeting house. It's where the church meets. It's not the church. The church is not brick, stone, and mortar and wood. You're the church. The church is people. We are, <coughs> excuse me, we are the living stones of the house, house of God. <coughs> excuse me. We are the living stones. How, <coughs> how do you spell church? C-H, you are C-H. C-H, first two letters of Christ's name, a monogram. Last two letters of church, C-H. C-H, C-H. What are the two letters in the middle? You are. You are the church. We are the church. Christ before us, Christ after us. Christ Alpha and Omega, we in the middle <coughs> to be his priests. What's more, he says, now he's writing to the New Testament church. He's writing to us. What's more, you are his holy priests to come to him and offer to God those things that please him. Every one of us is a priest. Every one of us is a priest. Some of us are preachers, some are businessmen, some are teachers, some are students, whatever it might be. We're all different responsibilities and callings in our secular life, but we're all called to be priests. What does that mean? That means that we're to so live in such a way that as Jesus said, when people see your good works, they will glorify my Father which is in heaven. Seeing us and the way we live, they will be reminded of God. We're to represent God to the people. That's why Jesus said, you are my ambassadors. 
He didn't say, you're my postman, just to carry a message. He said, you're my ambassadors. You are to represent me. And we're to represent the people to God. That's why we have the prayer ministry. That's why we have an intercessory ministry for people. That's why we care about people and visit people and are concerned about people. We're to represent the people to God, people with their hurts and their failures and their frustrations. Every one of us in this room is to be a priest of God. To do what? To do what they did in the early church, and that was to share the gospel with the world. It's exactly what we're left here to do, what we're called to do. You go back to the second chapter of the book of Acts in the beginning of the church, and you hear Simon Peter preaching, and he says, quoting Joel, and I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now listen to this, second chapter of Acts. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, not just some little esoteric group, not just those in the seminary, not just those who are pastors and evangelists, on all people. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now what does that mean? You hear the word daughters in there? Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Now, prophecy, the primary meaning of the word prophecy is not foretelling the future. That's the secondary meaning of the word. It's come to mean when people hear the word prophecy, they think, uh oh, it's somebody predicting the future. That's a misuse of that word. It means primarily not foretelling the future, it means forthtelling the gospel. Sounding forth the gospel. That's what. Prophecy is we are to proclaim the Word of God. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, shall proclaim the Word of God, just like those students did here this morning singing. They were prophesying. They were sharing the Word of God with us. So we are all, both sons and daughters, are to prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Now what's a vision? I believe it can be an apparition. I believe it can be something miraculous and remarkable that happens to some individuals. But I believe every one of us has the capacity of having a vision. Every one of us. I believe the best definition of vision is sanctified imagination. You never do anything until you first see yourself doing it. And where do you see yourself doing it? In your mind, in your daydreaming, in your thinking, in your praying. So we are to all have a vision for the future. I want to say a word to all of you fathers here with small children who will be leading or leading the, this church now, and your children are four, five, six, ten in that age group, infants. What kind of church do you want this to be ten years from now when your children are teenagers? And when my grandchildren are teenagers? What kind of vision do you have for the future of this church? Very important that you have one and that it be God-birthed in your mind and in your heart. What kind of vision do we have? What do, what do we want this church to be in the 21st century with all of its multitudinous problems? Many of them we're not even aware of yet, but our children are going to be living through those. Where are we going to be as a church? Are we going to be on the cutting edge? Are we going to be looking forward? Are we going to be looking backward? Are we going to have a vision for making a difference in the future, or are we going to try to just coast on the victories of the past? Your young men, your young men, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. When I get a little older, I'm going to start dreaming dreams. Uh, no, I believe what is old. I, it's, it's a relative term, term, but I believe it means that those who are further down the road of life 
are to dream dreams. Now, what does that mean? It means to daydream about what can be done. We may not have the same energy that we once had. We may not have the same opportunities that we once had, but we can dream about what God will be, and those dreams turn into prayers, and those prayers turn into action for the future. That's what we're here to do. That, you, you see, you see the, the inclusiveness there? I'll pour out my flesh upon all people. You see, sons, daughters, young men, old men. That's the whole church. Having vision, having dreams, having God's Spirit upon them. A pastor friend of mine was talking with Peter Drucker just a few days ago, and he shared this word with me. Peter Drucker, one of the great men in American life, one of the most brilliant men in America. And he made this statement, and I wrote it down. I wrote it down not only on a piece of paper, but wrote it down in my mind. Peter Drucker said, when your memories outnumber your dreams, you're in serious trouble. He's right, and he's over 80 years of age. When your memories outnumber your dreams, you're in serious trouble. Listen. When the memories in Trinity Baptist Church, all the wonderful things that have happened in the past, and for all of those we're grateful. But if we're more concerned about remembering the memories than we are our dreams, our future is in serious trouble. What are we here to do? We're to share the Word of God in such a way that we'll put out our arms and our hearts and our lives to be used by God to make a difference. And in a few days, we will be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the primary message of the New Testament in the book of Acts is resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. He came and gave his life so that we might have life. He came and died so that we might live. Grace Cook sent me a wonderful story that was in the National Geographic magazine. I'll tell you about it. I'm through. True story. It was after one of the devastating forest fires in Yellowstone National Park. And the forest rangers were going through assessing the damage in the park. And as they were walking along, one of the rangers saw down at the base of the tree, in, sort of encased between some roots and the trunk of the tree, down right against the ground, was a bird that was just incinerated still in the shape of the bird, very obvious. You could see that bird with its feathers outstretched. And it was so depressing to the forest ranger as he looked at it. It just had such a negative image in his mind of that poor bird that died there. He took the stick he was carrying in his hand and he hit it and it was just ashes and it all, the ashes fell off and three little birds came out, three little baby birds. And what had happened was this. That mother bird knew the fire was coming. She could see the fire was coming. She could tell the fire was coming. She could feel the fire coming. She could have flown away and left those three little babies alone. But she took those three little babies, and because of the instinct God had planted in her mind and heart and life, she took those three little baby birds and put them down there in that crevice up against the tree, knowing that the toxic fumes would rise, and this way the little birds could be saved. And then that mother just spread herself with her wings out over those three little babies. So when the fire came, she didn't move. And she saved the life of those three little baby birds. 
the 91st Psalm, fourth verse. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. God's wings are about us. God's life is, with, is within us. God's call is to us. March. Go. Go.